But it's this amazing moment when someone says, I, what was that song? Who, who did that song? It's like, which one was it? Oh, it was after the Steve Miller song and before the R.E.M. song. That was us. I wrote that, you know, and, and to get that reaction, that affirmation was really cool. You could really get in your van like we did, grind it out, playing for $50 in a pizza, sleeping on floors, but with, with, the, with the hope that uh, you could achieve your dreams and be the next Pearl Jam or Nirvana and win for a glorious, you know, five years in the 90s, that was, that was better than Ezra. Suddenly, better than Ezra was the band everybody wanted to sign. So it took us seven years of just hacking it out, lots of no's uh, to finally be the band. That was there was a bidding war for the band, and you know I always tell tell musicians it is a world anything you do it is a world of no's, um, but you just need that one yes to get your foot in the door, and that's what we just kept waiting for. We finally got that yes. Legend, welcome. I'm Scott Radford. This is the Performance Hackers podcast, and today we speak with Kevin Griffin, who's an American singer-songwriter, guitarist, and record producer who's best known for being the lead vocalist and guitarist for the rock band Better Than Ezra, who reached number one on the Billboard charts and have sold millions of records worldwide. Now, Kevin also has co-written hit songs for the likes of Taylor Swift and James Blunt and has also worked as a record producer. He's been in the music industry for 35 years. But what are some of the processes Kevin uses to be able to write hit songs under pressure? And what were some of the highs and lows of essentially being a bit of a rock star and achieving household stardom in a pretty cutthroat industry? Can't wait to share this one with you, so let's go. Well, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here, man. It's good to be here, man. It's nice. Thank you for having me. It's a beautiful day here in Tennessee. Yeah, I know. I can see the sun streaming through the windows as ever. In the streaming, my dog's looking at me, giving me guilty eyes, but all is <laughs> good. Can you give us a little bit of a background into your beginning and give us a bit of a snapshot maybe into what life was like growing up for you? Um, born in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, raised in Louisiana, in Monroe, Louisiana. And uh, then I went to school at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, always was play- I was very into sports and academics, but always was into music as well. And I, I was always in a band, had very few real jobs. It was always playing music. After college, uh, well, at the end of college, I started a band called Better Than Ezra that uh, we, we were playing the SEC, Southeastern Conference uh, circuit of bars and stuff from Georgia to Alabama to Tennessee to Texas, making a name for ourselves. And then uh, in the early 90s, we recorded uh, an album uh, in an apartment in West Hollywood, California. Uh, we were out. I was out there. Tr- I don't know. I was. Tr- I was avoiding law school because my scores were good for three years, and I was working at CAA, the talent agency, um, at the time. In in the formative years of that, um, but my band made an album uh, that we ended up going back to New Orleans, moving to New Orleans in '94, and uh, we made ourselves for about five thousand dollars and. And by by hustling and putting it out ourselves and, and albums on consignment, CDs, if, if you can remember those, and cassettes, actually, uh, we ended up having an album that uh, took off in, the, in 95 that sold several million copies. And uh, we toured the world, and suddenly I was in a band that was successful. 
and can have continued being in music. Um, I write for other artists, everybody from Taylor Swift to James Blunt to Sugarland to Meatloaf to Blondie. And uh, I, I um, started a music festival in Franklin, Tennessee uh, called Pilgrimage Festival that's happening September 23rd and 24th this year. Uh, we've had artists like the Foo Fighters, the Killers, uh, Beck, Justin Timberlake. Um, and so it really, if it has something to do with music, I've got a hand in it. You know, I'm always putting on different hats in in this uh, in in the realm of music, and always realizing, whoa, there's a whole new learning curve. It's amazing all the different hats you can wear within your own industry. You think you know your business until you put that other hat on. Um, and now I have a a book coming out <laughs> that I'm excited about, and uh, so so it's always. I have all these things, you know, there, there's that refrain. I'd rather regret the things I did rather than things I did it. So always I'm like, oh, I've got to do that. I haven't done it yet. So I thrive on challenges and, and, uh, and always kind of creating those new neural pathways in my brain. Where did that come from? Where did that disposition to try new things and not have regrets? Were, were there any early influences in your life that sort of set the foundation for that? I think some of it is nurture, but some uh, for me a lot of it was was nature. I was just born with a uh, I've always just had this drive. Um, maybe it was maybe it started with music. It started with uh, Elton John and Led Zeppelin and uh, and Sly and the Family Stone and Stevie Wonder. This group of albums my father brought to me uh, with my first stereo that just sparked in me the love of music and the desire to be a performer. And I've always just had that drive, whether it was in academics or sports. My father and my brother are, are the gifted athletes in the family. They played college ball. and My dad played a little bit of pro football. Uh, I love sports, but I wasn't gifted. My gift was in music. I've always been inquisitive and, and wanted uh, to know how to get to the next level. And, um, and it hasn't been without, uh, you know, hurdles and times where I was kind of um, sitting back, uh, but at some point that voice gets into my head. If you, if you're, if you don't work for a company and you're not, and you're your own boss, the only voice you have in your head that says, get off your ass, you know, go work out, work on the book, finish the song. The only voice you have is your own. And, you know, and it's a variance. It's the worst boss because it's you, you can't escape it. It's in your head, like get up you know, and that's the voice that's driven me most of my life. I love it. And when you created the band Better Than Ezra back in the day, yeah. it kind of sounds like there was a different energy to that that was not sort of like, oh, fair, can we do this? We're trying to break in. It, it sounded a little bit almost like a natural progression. Like what was the energy? What was the voice inside your head when you were creating that band as to what success you were expecting with that? I was always playing in bands, like I said, but at the time, you could, you know, in the late 80s when we formed, which is crazy to think about, but in the in the 90s, you could be a three-piece rock band and there really was the brass ring of, uh, of fortune and success and platinum albums uh, because we were lucky to be at a time where bands like Pixies and R.E.M. and The Smiths and Nirvana were, were the top 10 on, uh, were, they were the best, biggest artists in the world. Um, so you could have just a, a rock band. So I knew um, it was um, something that was attainable 
you know, so when we got Better Than Ezra together, I mean, we started like any other band playing a lot of covers, but we had originals. And very early on, people reacted to the original songs. Um, and so when I when I saw that, um, it kind of kept driving me. And so now it's it's a different animal. I'm super optimistic about where the music industry is now, but it's just a different thing. And so you could really get in your van like we did, grind it out, playing for fifty dollars in a pizza, sleeping on floors, but with with the with the hope that uh, you could achieve your dreams and be the next Pearl Jam or Nirvana and win for a glorious you know five years in the nineties. That was that was better than Ezra. I'd love to get your insight inside your head when you first released one of your own tracks or first played one of your own tracks that you'd built from your own head and that fan reaction. Like, what did that actually feel like? When you first, when you first get people, you know, you're used to, when you start off in music, you're used to people coming up and saying, man, I love your, your cover of, and they insert artists. But it's this amazing moment when someone says, I, what was that song? Who, who did that song? I was like, which one was it? Oh, it was after the Steve Miller song and before the R.E.M. song. That was us. I wrote that, you know, and, and to get that reaction, that affirmation was really cool. Um, and then when you fir- first hear your music on the local college radio station, because that's where, where songs broke. But but what it's interesting you ask that because. You know, whether it was a, a festival or publishing or a, a book or what is what as a songwriter, what it's allowed me to do. Um, if uh, it, once I've had some success as a, as a songwriter, especially with the first big song by Better Than Ezra, which was good and, and being able to see firsthand how an idea that felt, felt a little silly in my bedroom, in my apartment could turn into a chord progression, could turn into a lyric, could turn into a song, could turn into a something that someone came up to me and said, hey, what was that song? Then could turn into a physical album, a release, a single. And then I remember sitting in the French Quarter in 1995 and we were making the, the video for for Good. And, out, and, and production people and directors had flown in and the label was there. And I was like, this is way more, this, this simple idea uh, that felt silly and was nothing but ether floating around in the air is now this physical, tangible thing that's bigger than me and is, a, and is paying for people's uh, livelihoods. And it was really cool. And I always think back to that moment, like whatever idea I have, I just got to see it through. I just got to not stop. I'm not, I'm not going to quit. And if the given is, and this is the, the as, as Tenacious D, are you familiar with Tenacious D? Jack I am, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They have a song where they talk about this, where they're like, you got to keep striving. You got to never quit. But as long as you don't suck, you know, (laughs) because it's a cosmic joke is you can, you can never stop. You can never quit. But sometimes you suck. (laughs) (laughs) But as long as you don't suck and, uh, and um, then really uh, an idea can just, it it gets its own momentum. And, um, and that's the way it was for Better Than Ezra. And, you know, that first time you hear your song um, and that just kind of has uh, been the DNA for kind of how I conduct my life. I'd love to know what your advice would be to aspiring musicians and songwriters out there who are maybe struggling to find the courage. Because I think that once you start getting the feedback, it becomes slightly easier. But how do people get to that point where they're able to put their music out and be there long enough to start getting the feedback that they need? to continue pursuing their dreams? Oh, that that was a great question. You know, um, when I started, 
uh, gosh, you know, you had to struggle to to get some money to to find a studio in your hometown that was that was going to make a demo that sounded good and and getting music that sounded good that could that could actually document the song that was such a challenge and then how did you get anywhere what i would say to to songwriters and stuff starting out now is that this time is such an amazing time because of the connected connectivity you can be on your laptop with GarageBand or logic or pro tools at ableton or whatever it is and you can record a song you you can record that idea and in short order because of digital recording you can have something that sounds every bit as good as you know, the, the next Billie Eilish hit. And that's that's where Phineas and Billie Eilish started, in their bedroom on a laptop. Hits are being made on laptops. So you have the tools at your fingertips to make something that will compete with the biggest songs on the radio and with SoundCloud, TikTok, and the variety of different portals, you have an ability to get your music out there and start getting that feedback that that I had to go and go play clubs and stuff, which is still great. So it's a really, it's, so you have the ability to get that song out there. What I would say is just continue writing, write, 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 record and record. It's just like any other muscle or any other discipline, you know, and there's that idea that the, you know, it's worn out, but it's the truth, the 10,000 hours thing. You just got to do it. And that song you thought is your greatest work, um, in six months, what you'll be like, oh my God, you know, how could I have thought that was good? At the same time, you got to remember there was something magical even then, because, you know, uh, the, the biggest kind of uh, uh, lie that a lot of musicians uh, feed themselves is that the old stuff isn't any good. But look, I'm, I'm here to tell you some of your old songs, you know, it's, it's the gift that keeps giving. Here it is. You know, I wrote good in 1993 and it's still, you know, every, every quarter, it, Checks come in the mailbox for it. So it's silly great. But um, I would just say that you have so much um, ability. All the labels are scouring TikTok, searching algorithms. Who is this artist who's getting these feeds? So get your music out there. Record. Um, There's so much. In part of this book, I talk about filling the well, knowing the business of your business, um, being able to know who are, know who's in the charts in, in whatever genre you're in, you know, go online and, and find out who, who are the A&R people for the artists you love, who are the producers on that song. You know, you click on the three dots next to the song you're listening to on Spotify. It tells you the credits, the songwriters, the label, the, the, the uh, producer of it. You have at your fingertips, you have all the means to get your song from in your head to the laptop to that person who can change your life. And what was your story? Did you write good? And was that the sort of launch pad for your career? Or how did you get your first break, your first into the music industry? You know, nothing ever really came easy for Better Than Ezra, you know, you know, and I wish it did. (laughs) But we had to, we, good, good was written, good was actually written in 1990. And it wasn't until 1995 that we were signed. And that song was, we did countless um, showcases in really sterile practice rooms, rehearsal rooms in LA and New York and with, with uh, uh, publishers and label heads with their arms crossed, you know, just, they were not moved at all. Uh, And, you know, and we just didn't quit. Um, And it was really in uh, 1995 when good, the, the the first, the, the recording that showed up on the deluxe album, which was done on 16 track tape, analog tape, the old school way, um, 
it started reacting at radio stations throughout the South. And a station 99X, which launched REM and a lot of different bands, um, kind of launched Better Than Ezra when they started playing. They were a commercial radio station. And suddenly, after being together for seven years and having a, a song like Good and a lot of them that were, you know, five years or more, five years older or more, suddenly Better Than Ezra was the band everybody wanted to sign. So it took us seven years um, of just hacking it out, lots of no's, uh, to finally be the band that was, there was a bidding war for the band. And, you know, I always tell, tell musicians, it is a world anything you do. It is a world of no's. Um, but you just need that one yes to get your foot in the door. And that's what we just kept waiting for. And we finally got that yes. And we were then suddenly we were in the enviable position of having an album. We made ourselves have a number one song. So when it came to publishing deals and, and, and record deals, we signed with Electra Records. We were in a really good uh, position, as good a position as you could be in as an artist in the 90s. And you mentioned that, you know, a, a hundred no's, but you only need one to be successful. And I think I read that quote in your new book, The Greatest Song, which I absolutely bloody love. That was one of the rules for allowing yourself to be stupid, right? Basically, it's you just have to continue. You know, perseverance, it's such a cliche. But at the end of the day, there are always going to be people more talented than you. There are going to be people who are smarter than you. Where the rubber hits the road and where the, at the end of the day, who are your peers who are still around are the people that just don't quit? Because there's, there's always going to be people better than you, but they quit. You know, they get cynical. Cynicism is just the kiss of death in anything. You know, and I'm just like, I just kind of soldier on. If a song doesn't happen, I'm like, I'll write another song and just keep going. So, yeah. Um, it's, it, you just you just keep searching for the next yes. That's a, that's a good t- book title, The Next Yes. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Let's write it together, Scott. Let's do this. It's also, funnily enough, the, the title of this show now, probably. <laughs> you seem like you had a quality there that allowed you to become resilient and persevere and almost show that grit. I, I spoke earlier to a former U.S. Navy SEAL who looked at attributes that to success, and one of them was these sort of like grit attributes. Where do you think that came from in your childhood, or why was that in place when you came to entering the, entering the music industry? I think part of it I was born with, but also my dad, my father. You know, uh, my dad had a mantra. My, my dad would always say, Kevin, lazy man works twice as hard. You know, and, you know, when I wouldn't do something right, you know, a, a tour or something, and then you have to go back and fix it. Lazy man works twice as hard. Do it right the first time, you know. Uh, when, when I wanted to quit football in junior high, my dad said, uh, uh-uh. you started this, you're going to finish it and made me go and, you know, go back and say, I'm sorry, you know, I didn't show up at practice, you know? And so those things I think, uh, and I try to instill that in my kids, you know, the not quitting thing. Um, I, my dad was, was an old school kind of guy. Um, for better or for worse, and great father, but but instill those things. You're not quitting. Um, lazy man works twice as hard, and that's again that voice in my head. Um, uh, and I, so I think that was it. You know, my brother is a high achiever, and um, so that was in my family. And I just, I just always, I was enamored with uh, with with music and the bands I loved. And I wanted that man. And, uh, and, you know, moving to Los Angeles, like so many people, it draws you. Um, so there was that, that just drive, 
that I don't know where it came from, but that, that just being born with it, being infected with the love of music that once you get it, oh, you're screwed. Once you first get on that stage or you get some applause, you're like, oh, forget it. It's like, uh, yeah, your body instantly is hardwired to get that dopamine or whatever that hit is, you want more of it. Yeah. Law school never really stood a chance, did it, after that? It didn't. And I was close because, you know, I work with a lot of young artists. Like yesterday, I was working with this kid, uh, Jonah Kagan, who's on um, Arista Records, and he's amazing. He's 23. Uh, he's so accomplished and so focused. Um, I didn't have that singularity of purpose. You know, I was... I didn't want to be a starving musician. I love music, but I was like, oh, I need the safety net of law school. I need this. And it finally, you know, uh, the scores ran out and I had to, I had to be successful in music, but uh, it was always going to win. But I, I always wanted uh, safety nets. And, you know, I, so I envy the people who, that don't do that. Maybe I was mm -hmm. just being, you know, I don't know. I don't know. There's a, a book that I read recently and it kind of blew me away because it detailed the sort of backgrounds of some of the most successful people to ever live. And it actually showed that none of them actually just went all in on their main thing. You know, if uh, you look at the guy from all the greatest founders of our generation, they always had a safety net that they peeled themselves away from gradually before they jumped across to their main thing. Uh, and so I think that there's always this common misconception that people like need to go all in and it's like this or nothing. And um, you just yeah. sort of got to live on the streets until you make it. But that's very rarely the case for a lot of the most successful people. You're, you're right. It, it, it is a fallacy uh, for the most part. And it's always nice to, to, to when you historical figures or people that you look up to that they were just as confused and scared as you were, you know, and that's, that is the truth. Um, I do work with some artists who don't finish high school. They don't go to college. It's just music. I'm home. I started, you know, I realized when I was 17, I'm getting, I got homeschooled. I was just music, music. I'm like, great. Good for you. That wasn't me. And now we know it wasn't some of the other greats of the world. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What was the actual day-to-day -day feels of being a successful band that was sort of globally known you were you were blowing up all over the place selling millions of records like what was the day-to-day -day feel like because i know a lot of people when you speak to them retrospectively they they were never sort of in present enough to enjoy the there and now they never felt like they'd make it um one of the things that was good about ultimately good about the fact that we worked so hard. I was 28 uh, when it finally all broke for Better Than Ezra. So we had been hacking it out, you know, for seven, eight years. So I think um, had it happened right out of the gate success, I wouldn't have been able to appreciate it as much. But because I was a little older, now at 54, me saying that, you know, uh, speaking of a, of a wise old 28 years old, 28 years old, that's kind of funny. Um, so I was a little more uh, mature and able to really savor and appreciate the moment. I actually kept a diary of everything that happened uh, for those first couple of years. And I go back and look at it every once in a while. It was just this amazing, we went from zero to 100 uh, in a month. We, we signed our first deal February 8th, 1995 in LA, and sorry, in New York. Um, a month later we were on Letterman, you know, we were flying all over doing press tours in, in Europe. The, the greatest thing ever 
where where press every band will tell you and and you just kind of wax nostalgic when you're with other artists you're like oh remember remember doing press tours in europe you're not playing shows you're just going from city to city doing radio and television lip syncing your songs and going out on the bars at night you know going to you know uh, cool parties and um it was amazing some of the best parties were in paris uh and uh but i was able to really enjoy it um and kind of savor it i i had this we had this crazy manager uh who really taught me to enjoy uh you know great restaurants and, and history and cities so when i make a point um when i'm in cities I, we're foodies in this and in, in my band i'm certainly a foodie and, and an architecture buff and so when i go to a city I, I do my due diligence before and even even then that first year um so it was for a lot of people um, I think they can enjoy it or maybe they're ill-equipped to, but it was a, it was a, just this amazing fun ride that I still look back at. Um, and, and, and because of that, I think in, in my career has certainly had its ups and downs. Um, but for the most part, it's been ups and, and it's a super fickle industry. And, uh, and now I, I love mentoring younger artists, um, that either I, that I signed to a publishing deal or that I'm just writing with. And part of the, 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 the motivation with writing the book was just like, look, it's a, like all careers, it's a uh, music business is one littered with minefields. And so how do you navigate that? And, and what are tools you can do? What did I do right? What did I do wrong? And how, you know, and I wanted to share that. And, uh, cause at some point you want, you want what you do to have some purpose and some intent. And I'm no exception to that. What was the one thing that you think you did wrong in your career? Um, it's very easy to, when you have a hit, just to kind of go, you know, to lay back. But but because you know, okay, I've got a hit song. Usually the royalties uh, are delayed by two or three quarters. But and it, it, once you have a few hits, you know, you know the story arc of a hit, you know, and so you, you can just sit back because um, you know money's going to be fine for a couple of years. You know you're going to get asked to be in the A-list uh, writer rooms with the big artists. You know, And what happens is, though, when you sit back, you lose your momentum and, those, that, and that muscle memory. Writing songs is just like any, anything you do. You got to do it all the time just, just to stay on it, to stay fit and stay competitive. So I think what I what I have been guilty of is you know uh, resting on my laurels a little bit, you know. Uh, but but that's something I realized. I'm like, oh, you're doing it. That voice in my head. So I think I think that's where I've stumbled. Um, maybe too early in my career, trying to rewrite an old hit. You know, uh, you know, tr like what was why why was good so big? Why can't we get that number one again? Uh, and then realizing that that was just a moment. Um, so I think a bit of that, um, gosh, that's a good question though. Probably more than I'd care to admit. <laughs> I'm really intrigued when you said you went from zero to a hundred in like a, a few months, like oh, that yeah. must be what everybody's dream is like to be this overnight success, which obviously you'd been working for seven or eight years. So it was probably quite a modest way of saying it, but what does that do for you in terms of like, were there any consequences to having that sort of fame thrust upon you so quickly? Well, I mean, it, it was, it was crazy to go from being in a 
82 Dodge Ram van, you know, touring around in that to going to a tour bus to suddenly going to, you know, your first class jets, you're going to do Letterman, you're going to do Conan, you're going to do Leno, you're going over to England and you're, you're playing shows with, with, uh, incredible showcases. That was, um, that was amazing. I think that it was just, just a really challenging time. Um, and, uh, I mean, nothing really can prepare you for it, you know? I'd love to see if you have like something that pops up into mind in terms of like the high. We talked about maybe some things that you regret or you didn't do very well, but have you got a high or a, an experience in mind that just takes you back to the peak of that period of your life? Um, wow. Um, I, think, I think that at one point I remember one moment sticks out in that head, those heady days of, of early success was we, were, we had just done some shows with this new artist at the time, Alanis Morissette. <laughs> it's just crazy to think about. And we had played all these sold out shows with her in, in, uh, in, in the UK. And we were flying back um, uh, to the States. And we were playing, uh, that night we played at a, uh, a show at RFK Stadium um, to 80,000 people um, with Pearl Jam and Red Hot Chili Peppers and PJ Harvey and Hole. But we were the only band that had a number one song. Uh, and we had the number one song on alternative radio at pop radio. And then the next day we were scheduled to go do Letterman. And that was this moment. I was like, how did this happen? How did this, where's this, where this little band from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, this little college band, a three piece that we made this record for $8,000 all in. And now we've got the number one song, number one album in the country. Norm MacDonald on Saturday Night Live just said one of his most famous jokes ever. That was on Weekend Update this summer. The number one band uh, at college campuses was better than Ezra. Number two, Ezra, and it was just everywhere. And it was just this heady moment of, of this playing to a sold out stadium to doing Letterman. Uh, and I and I was dating this beautiful girl from New Zealand who had produced our videos, and I was just on top of the world. It was a good moment. <laughs> And where did Better Than Ezra come from? Uh, you know, we for years we haven't told anybody. Uh, we found we found that people were more interested in the band before we told them the name of the band. And there are books that uh, how bands got their names. And bands like the Rolling Stones and the Who and U2 and Coldplay, they have a paragraph dedicated to them. But, but when it comes to Better Than Ezra, it's nowhere near as, as big as those bands. There's several pages my, one of my favorite explanations is uh, page 258 of Hemingway's Immovable Feast. It says, anything was better than Ezra learning how to play the bassoon. Uh, I wish it was that smart and literary, but it actually came. There was a book, uh, a magazine uh, like National Lampoon um, in the late 80s. It was called Spy Magazine. And Spy Magazine was a kind of a humor, adult humor magazine. And there was an article that was um, how to name your band. And they were and all the different band names were in different categories like uh, religious, philosophical, rock and roll. And there was one called uh, in the religious. There was Jehovah's Angry Foot, um, which would have been a great name uh, for a band. But there was one that was uh, better than Hendrix. Better Than Hendrix was a, a band name they suggested. 
which would just be so so uh, uh, offensive. And then there was a uh, in the literary there was the Ezra Pounders, named after the great Irish poet Ezra Pound. Uh, Scott, I'm sure you're a big Ezra Pound fan. Uh, and, and <laughs> I mean, point, I don't know how much but, airplay you'd get being called the Ezra Pounders, but <laughs> no, no. But uh, but we had to do a show. I was the DJ at a college bar. And a band was coming into town and we needed an opener. And my my boss said, hey, Kevin, do you know any band that can play? And I immediately thought of my own band that had only had one rehearsal. And he goes, I, I was like, there's a great band from New Orleans. It was a lie. We were from Baton Rouge. And he said, well, what's the name? And I was like, Better Than Ezra. So I combined Better Than Hendrix and the Ezra Pounders and we did Better <laughs> Than Ezra. And that's really how it happened. So the the here on this podcast the the truth has been divulged get ready for your numbers to go through the roof i just want to take a few seconds to talk about the guys over at opus who make this podcast possible because to me they're the epitome of high performance for young leaders founders and decision makers looking to make a mark now opus is a membership community that doesn't just help you accelerate professionally but also helps you grow and develop personally too Opus basically puts you in a room with peers looking to open doors, provide intros and opportunities, and even invest and help you level up, regardless of the stage you're at in your own bold journey to create that impact. Now, when I joined Opus, I went from basically feeling a little bit alone, like I had to do everything myself in my entrepreneurial journey, and missing the energy and the ideas and the collaboration of others, to actually having an endless new source of high-quality connections, a long list of the world's highest performers to interview, and even this partnership, which has allowed us to scale the show. Also, the private events are absolutely legendary. Imagine being able to meet like-minded people at intimate events hosted by global industry leaders, or even just like I do, rocking up on a Friday afternoon WeWork session for a free beer. It's all available at Opus. So if you're on that journey as an entrepreneur or a decision maker in your industry, and you really want to be immersed by others doing the same with all the opportunities that that provides, go and check out joinopus.org. All the links will be in the show notes, and I bet it will be the best decision you make this year. It certainly was for me. Now back to the show. I love it. I can't wait. <laughs> a part of your book you mention, and I, I feel like when I read it, it came that the emotion poured out of like the word and the, and the context in which you were saying it, and that's the word has been. And it seemed like quite an emotive word that you were using in the story. Has there been sort of a compromise between like your internal values and how you want to show up as an artist and the battle for staying relevant? Yeah, I think that I haven't, um, you mean compromising to stay successful uh, in order to elude that ever-present gnawing voice of someone of, of being a has-been, you know? Much better um, way of putting it. <laughs> you didn't know, right? Um, luckily, luckily for me, I have my natural thing I write is poppier. You know, I like fun, easy songs. Remember, my biggest my biggest litmus test for a song is if a if a toddler likes your song. If a toddler, if, you, if I play, if I play my music for one of my nieces or nephews and they start bopping their head, or when my kids were young, I was like, I got a hit. You know, so um, my songs, uh, my, my favorite songwriters are Tom Petty, um, just super, who was the king of this simple, perfect song. There's just such brilliance in simplicity and, 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 and to getting rid of the extra fat and distilling it down to what is the real thing. So my songs naturally are poppy songs. 
Um, so I haven't really, <laughs> I never really had a lot of artistic uh, trappings to get rid of, Scott. I've always just been straight down the middle. I want you to like my music. Um, but, but you know, so it's not like I was Tom York, you know, and I had to, you know, like, God, I know everybody wants to hear high and dry, but I want to make the next, you know, okay computer. I never had those considerations. But sometimes, sometimes um, I've, uh, you know, I was able to do this with a solo record I did. Just like, hey, this song is six minutes long, and I know I should cut out some parts, but I'm just not going to. Um, but I, I think that, you know, we everybody, I'm no, I'm no exception in that. Um, there are some people who will always will always think of me as the just the guy in better than Ezra. What happened to you guys? It's amazing what people will say. Well, they don't mean it. They don't. It doesn't. They don't think it comes out offensive or, or hurtful because they don't mean it that way. But like they'll say, "Oh my God, you're in that band better than Ezra. You guys used to be awesome." You know, like in past tense, they're like, "I used to love you guys," and like. Thank you. And people and and you never get offended because people mean it well. And I probably would say the same thing. But you're always um, I've 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 had a pretty good, you know it 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 took a while, but I have uh, some uh, self awareness in, in that you know I'm in a band that was will always be thought of as you know a '90s band. So um, and that bugged me for a while, but. Um, but now I just really appreciate it and love it because I realize it was it's so hard to be anything in the in the music business that people remember. So if that's where you want me to, to put me, brother, I'll keep doing it. You know, meanwhile I'm writing songs for for artists that are on the radio today and having hits. But I but I'll take it. Um, but I think that for a lot of artists that 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 uh, albatross that word has been is is you know. Uh, is is a something that is always nipping at your heels, especially like in L.A. You know, L.A. is a mm. city that was it was so about what have you done lately? Not so much in Nashville because maybe it's full of has-beens. I don't know. Your songwriting, obviously, you you mentioned before the incredible people that you've written for, not just your own band, but um, some of the biggest pop stars in the world. And there's a lot of evidence that now suggests that creativity makes such an important contribution to organizational innovation and competitiveness and survival, which I know a lot of our listeners are starting their own companies and looking about how that they can become more creative to succeed in their own endeavors. Can you take us through a little bit of your creative process into writing a hit song? What conditions need to be present for you to get into that zone? Well, just to, to, to address what you said, just about the need for creativity in your life, you know, there's the famous Pablo Picasso quote, which I use in the book that, that we're all born artists, but the challenge is, is how do you stay an artist as you get older? And my whole thing is how do, how do, to phrase it a different way, how do I grow into my creativity as opposed to out of it? Um, and when you're, and when you, when you start off as an artist or whatever it is you're doing, you know, you're so full of inspiration and it's just a, it's a product of being young because when you're, when you're born and your relationship with your parents and your siblings and, and your, and your first loves and college and the first music you love, you're full of inspiration. But as we go on, yeah, you can't just, it's, it can't be a passive thing anymore. Inspiration, which, uh, that, that, that fuels creativity has to be something that has intent. Um, so I realized, uh, at a point when I was, when I got dropped from my first deal, 
um, and, and considered like maybe going back to law school and leaving music, I, I had the point where I was like, wait a second, I love writing songs and doing what I'm doing, but something's got to, something, I've got to do something different. And some words came into my head, um, you know, nothing that my father used to say to me uh, that nothing changes of nothing changes. So I made it, I made a conscious attempt uh, in early 2000s, like I'm going to continue in music, but I'm going to do things to continue to keep my edge creatively. And, uh, and it really is uh, in, in, I, I address it in the book. It's, it's collaborating something I never did. Um, it's filling the well, which is, uh, is how do I continue absorbing new inspiration? Um, and that can be, it's, that's listening to new music, always going down that rabbit hole on Spotify. Um, uh, and it's really osmosis. If I'm around stuff that's really inspiring and stuff, it, you know, the, the, the movement of, greater concentration and lesser concentration. In this instance, it's me, you know, when I'm around new music or new ideas in my business, they can't help but influence me. So I have to, but I have to go out and, and be overt about exposing myself to them. Um, always knowing what's happening in my business, knowing the business of my business, being able to connect the dots. Um, another thing I use to stay creative is something I call changing my attitude that I talk about in the book. And, uh, and it's illustrated in a chapter where our songwriter, our protagonist, Jake uh, Stark, goes up in an airplane. And, um, and the pilot, who's a very successful songwriter named Shane Sawyer, demonstrates to him that, that uh, a changing your attitude. And I love when you hear the phrase changing your attitude, you think uh, like a parent or a coach would have said to you, you need to change your attitude. But an aviation attitude is your orientation to the ground surface. And so it's really how you, what is your angle of approach when you're landing a plane or what is your angle of approach when you're trying to solve a creative problem? Um, so all the time when I'm in a songwriting session, I usually write a song with guitar. Um, but if I'm having a problem with it, I'm like, okay, change my attitude. How, do, how can I change my angle of approach to, to break a creative deadlock? Um, so I'll put, the, I'll put the guitar down. I'll come up with a beat. Um, uh, I'll use a beat without, I'll, uh, I'll just let, like, let's make a cool beat without fail. Somebody starts singing along to the beat or we'll start with the lyric or if that's not working, like, Hey, what's a song we all love right now? Oh, Molly Cyrus flowers. What are the, what are the chords? Let's, let's reverse engineer uh, a song, reverse en engineer a great idea, whatever business you're in, what's something that you're just loving right now? What are the, com the what the components that make it great? And when you start pulling away the layers without fail, a new idea comes up with. So changing attitude, um, leaving your comfort zone all the time. I'll leave my studio where I'm at right now. I'll go right outside. Um, in the book, I talk about a song being written uh, on a float boat, a pontoon boat with in a very uh, embarrassing situation. But the biggest thing is, you know, to stay creative, it, it keeps me going is uh, and this is illustrated by uh a character in the book. He is, his name is Sir Daniel Smith Daniels. He's he's a twenty eight year old wonderkind, wunderkind, um, loosely based. Sir Daniel Smith Daniels. That name was was a t uh, was a tip of the hat to Spinal Tap. <laughs> but but he's a genius who 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 comes up with this uh, supply chain algorithm for impoverished countries. But his real love is music, and he il illustrates a concept of daring to be stupid. 
And it's the idea of this, um, and, and I'm stealing this from Sir Kenneth Robinson, who was a famous educator, British guy, one of the best TED Talks ever, who famously said that you'll never come up with anything truly groundbreaking unless you're prepared to fail. And, uh, and to that point, the people in music and the songwriting sessions who are the ones who really crush it are the ones that don't have any filter. They don't second guess themselves, like, what are they going to think? They just throw ideas. It's just this constant stream of ideas. Throw it against the wall. See if it sticks. Don't worry about feeling silly. And when you create an environment in a songwriting session, like right here where I'll be doing it in about an hour and a half, or it's the most sterile business environment, when you create an atmosphere where big ideas are encouraged and, and failure isn't stigmatized, that's when you get that next paradigm shifting song tech idea, whatever it is. So those are really kind of the creative things I do. You know, you know, it's always, um, it's always like, okay, this isn't working. What do I do next? And through, through doing those five different things, something always breaks, you know, something always, uh, there's always a, 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 a glimmer of light that comes through and like, that's our song. Yesterday it happened, you know, this as, as well. We were like, for example, yesterday we had this song, we didn't have a chorus, and, um, so I was, so, and I realized I was like, oh, all our, all the, our melodies are starting after the one, not right on the beat. I was like, let's start the chorus on the beat. And then the, and the guy Jonah just said, started this lyric right on top of the beat. And it was just that intangible thing to give us that lift and that transition for a chorus that would pop and be memorable. Wow. That was a pretty full full-blown answer i got about a million questions on all of that stuff <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> have you ever had an idea that maybe you picked up that's convention in the musical industry i guess there's like formulas and popular convention for what will make a great song have you ever ditched any of that to sort of tap into something that you know works specifically for you even though it's not proven because i guess that comes back to your point of changing your attitude there's a quote that says effectiveness is the measure of truth and it's essentially all of these systems and these conventions are quite arbitrary, but what works for you is the truth, right? Yeah. I mean, in music, there is really, you know, I guess they're just guide, they're, they're just guideposts, you know, and even the things I talk about in the book. Um, but ultimately, yeah, what, what works for you? What is, that's really brilliant. You know, what, what is your truth? It's what is effective for you. Um, uh, what I found is what is effective for me works for a long time until it doesn't, you know, and what I realized in my life, uh, that brought me up to, I had a lot of success. I wrote all the songs and better than us, or I didn't collaborate at all. And a lot of us, you know, we, 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 we run on self-will our own truth and we don't rely on anybody else. Um, and man, if that works for you, your whole life, awesome. For most of us, it doesn't. At some point you hit that, you hit a self-imposed wall. And so for me, that's, that's when I had to say, I need help. Um, I need to collaborate. I need to do all these different things. And, and because my peers who are, who I'm envious of, that's what they do. You know, they're super, super successful, but also it happened in my life too. You know, I was just, um, you know, in my, 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 my marriage, I think at one point I was, I felt like I was like, wow, you're drinking a little too much, <laughs> you know? Um, 
you know, and I was like, well, why don't you talk to some people who, who can help you? And so, so at some point, you know, self-will momentum ego, um, yeah, is the thing that limits you. And, and in the book, you know, um, but I got this, there's a, there's a, there's a great phrase. My ego is not my amigo. You know, that the ego is the thing that's, that the ego is the thing that tells you, you know, my song, my idea is better than theirs. It, and it won't allow you to listen to the song or the idea. It, 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 it blocks you off from getting any better. But when you strip that away, you know, that way of doing things, um, oftentimes that's when suddenly this whole new level opens up, this whole new door opens up. And uh, so, yes, what works for you is your truth until it doesn't. Is the industry as cutthroat as it sounds? Because obviously, from your point of view, you've been in the industry for so long and been so successful. People listening could probably be like, oh, it sounds like, you know, you can have a 30 year career and you can try different things and you can fail a few times. But it sounds like it's quite a cutthroat industry. Like, how have you experienced that? And how have you allowed yourself to play with all of the different processes and learning points throughout a career that is quite brutal in getting rid of you if it's not working. It, it, it is a super fickle business. Um, it's very, um, what have you done for me lately? Um, I've kind of, I've always been a, a, a bit aware of that. Um, and uh, as an artist though, often when things have happened, we're the last ones to know. You know, uh, maybe that's maybe, and I'm speaking for myself, but maybe that's the way it is in life. That often, when a, a sea change has happened in your life, you you're not everybody else around you knows it's happening, but you don't know. You know, um, and uh, it is so. What I mean by that is like when when maybe your band, everybody in the business knows your band isn't going to have a hit song again, but you don't know that. <laughs> you, know, you just keep plugging away. Um, but, but, you know, I've, uh, l luckily I, I've, I've, like I said earlier, you know, I was a little older when I had success. I, I had seen a lot of bands, friends be signed and let go. I knew that was going to happen at some point. I knew we weren't going to be the young band, you know, and I actually wanted to get past this, the initial big success when we were for a little bit a household name, um, and just be a band you know, uh, be a journeyman, you know, be a band that has our fans and go out and tour and like, and thank God we're at that place. We're going out, we're going out with a band called train this summer, and we're going to be doing amphitheaters all over, all over the U S so check it, go to better than Check it out. Um, but, but I think, um, for me, I tell, I say this all the time. Look, if you're in a, if you're in Coldplay or, or Green Day or you're uh, some perennial artist that never got dropped and never had to do anything, man, more power to you. For, but for most of us in the music business, you know, it's a constant. It, you're going to wear a lot of hats, and if you want to stay in this business, you better have a lot of irons in the fire. And I am, I am the poster child of diversifying. Um, you know. I've, I've always had this, I've got three different live projects. I do. There's uh, we, I started the super group with 90. I use that in quote air quotes, super group uh, with Mark McGrath from sugar Ray and a, and a guy named Emerson Hart from tonic. We play all over. We do shows. I do solo shows. Um, I publish different artists. 
I manage some artists. I have pilgrimage festival. I've had to wear a lot of different hats to constantly uh, to stay in this business um, because maybe it was a fear in this cutthroat business of, 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 of being tagged irrelevant or a has been. Maybe it maybe it all comes down to insecurity. I don't know, but but I really just um, it's just always trying to evolve, have some self awareness, but also staying nimble. And and that's what and staying nimble and always learning and being and checking that ego and and saying and being able to say, you know, I don't. I love the when I when I can say I don't know. <laughs> we just say because. You're fooling yourself when we say we know everything. So uh, in in my business, um, which is a cutthroat business, as you said, you know, being able to say I don't know and how do how do I continue that journey of getting better, um, and and I've been able to do that, uh, and and a lot of the ups and downs uh, and the pitfalls I talk about in the book because uh, I wanted to share that. And what I've realized is that um, I was listening to a podcast. And they were interviewing a guy who runs the Stanford Life Design Lab. You can look up his name. Um, and he was talking about these things that they that uh, they teach at, at Stanford in this Life Design Lab. And he was talking about it. And I was like, oh, my God, that's actually a lot about the stuff I talk about in the book. Um, so I really there's what I love is that there there's there are certain truths and you probably know this too. You you speak to so many different people. You hear these these commonalities, these things repeated over and over again. Um, the cool thing about doing it in this book was that people love music, and it, and music is is something that moves people. If they're not in the business, it still seems glamorous and sexy. Being in the business, I know. Oh, there's nothing sexy or glamorous about the music business. But uh, so I was just really. Um, uh, sharing those truths, you know, in the, in this business, which as you said, it is, is cutthroat, but you know, just like any business at the end of the day, you see the same faces over and over again, people bounce and, and change careers. And if you conduct yourself the right way, you're going to work with those people again. Um, and at the end of the day, I don't know. Now, now I'm so, I've been in it so long. I don't feel that I'm swimming as with as with as many sharks as I used to be. Do you have any fears now, still today? <sighs> Let's see. You know, yeah. You know, it's it's what drives me. You know, is I'll I'll look at my calendar and like, do I have enough shows booked over the next year? I'll call my manager. Why don't we have any shows in October and November? You know, it's always, and you know, and I'm, I'm, my, I'm heartened to hear, like I was, uh, like, again, look, we're, we're on a podcast. I'm a podcast. I, I consume a lot of podcasts and there was a very, very famous actor. Um, and he was just saying, they were asking him, you know, what, what keeps you up at night? It's like, oh my God, do I have any work, you know, ahead? Uh, so I think it's always, you know, who's on my calendar? Who am I writing with? Uh, what's the next show? You know, you know, uh, and it's, it's usually, and what, what's interesting is th- those fears are usually amplified at night. Somebody needs to talk about, cause have you ever, you know, when you wake up, you wake up in the middle of the night, you go to the bathroom and you come back and you lie in bed 
and never make the mistake of starting to think about some things you need to get done because you will not go to sleep. And there's a, there's a great power at night uh, when you're lying in bed, it's dark for that hamster wheel in your head to start going like this of fears that when you wake up in the morning, you're like, why was I freaked out about that last night? Because in the light of day, often our fears um, have no hold over us, but uh, the fears, there's just the same. Maybe that's what drives me too. Can we talk about um, pressure? Because yeah. we talked before the show about the fascination that I have personally from being in an environment that's a high pressure environment, but not, I'm not required to then activate the creative part of my brain as well. And I can't quite rally how we can be really, really creative. I think there's been studies done that shows that there's almost this bell curve of the amount of pressure that's put on someone and them peaking creatively and then it going against them and then their creativity dropping off with the more time pressure that's put on. So how are you able to be creative without pressure blocking your creativity, I guess? It's funny because that's really the definition of kind of what I do because I get an artist, they get here at 11 a.m. I know they're going to want to start, get, they're going to start getting antsy around 3.30 or 4 p.m. Uh, so I have, you know, four, four and a half hours to write a, write a hit song, write a great song. Let's say write a great song. Um, so that's really the DNA of, uh, of what I do. Um, how do I deal with the pressure? I do my due diligence before I'm in that situation. I do my due diligence. You know, I, if I'm writing with an artist, I spend a couple of days listening to their music, looking at their, uh, I, I turn into a complete creeper, you know, uh, I, I go on their Instagram. I've seen what they're into, where they've been. Cause so when they get there in that pressure situation, I'm totally prepared and I know where they're coming from. Um, so preparation, doing my due diligence is key. Um, because otherwise I'm spending a lot of time getting to know them. I already kind of know them. I'm not going to let them know how much I know them, you know, and there's some songwriters who are really, really good. You know, it's like Jedi mind tricks, you know, like, uh, uh, like I have a friend who, who knew an artist had just been in London and, and he, we were in the songwriting session and he was like, yeah, man, you know, it's like when you're in London and Bob and, it was, and, the, and, the, and the artist went, I was just in London. Like, no, where are you? <laughs> Let's write about that. You know? Um, so, so, Inception. So, so, right. Exactly. So, um, so it's, it's, it's being prepared. Um, and then also, you know, just like yesterday, I could I knew that we didn't have a chorus. We had this great vibe. The track was coming along, the the lyrics were 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 really cool, but we didn't have a chorus. And I was like, okay, we got. I need to change my attitude. We're 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 going. We're we're hitting this block, and it was really just like, okay, how do we approach this differently? You know, let's think about the beat. Let's think about the production. Um, but. Um, so I just, to avoid that pressure where, because if you are under pressure and you don't have any tools to deal with it, then I could see that bell curve where the creativity starts to fall off. Um, that's part of what I hate being, I hate being the guys. I, that's what I said in my book, <laughs> but it's really, it, it really is about what are the, what are those things I do? You know, uh, the main thing is, is always, um, is, is, it's taking a break too. You know, how to avoid that pressure. Also, it's knowing when to, hey, 
let's take a field trip. You know, let's leave, let's leave the office. Let's leave this. Let's leave the studio. Let's go to Starbucks. You know, um, I can't tell you the times when, when I'm, we're banging our heads. We have an hour and a half left. We can't come up with the lyric. We take a break and I'm ordering a coffee or I go to the bathroom at, 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 at Starbucks and the lyric pops into my head. Just to leave that environment, changing your environment, leaving your comfort zone. Um, you know, when, when, I'm, when life is in flux and I'm off balance, that's usually when I come up with my best ideas. You know, I, I, and so it's just using those tools that, that I talk about in the book, but you, you have them in whatever discipline you're in, you know, just to, to be prepared to, to approach things from a different angle. And that usually breaks that creative, that creative deadlock. Um, and prevents that pressure cooker from building up. What is it that you're writing for these days? Is it the same as when you started out and why you started writing songs back in the day? Or is something different that drives you nowadays? Are you still after like the hit song? Back in the day, in the beginning, I was only writing for me. You know, And when you write for yourself, you're, it's good and it's bad. You know, um, the good thing is you know what you like. You know, you know which songs you like. The bad thing is, you're you're second guess. You second guess yourself. You don't want to repeat the songs you've done. You want to outdo your own body of work. Um, nowadays, when I'm writing a song, um, I'm often writing for somebody else, and it's super freeing. I, all those considerations I just mentioned, I don't have. I'm just going to write a great song. Um, so I. I Every once in a while, you say, let's write a hit song. And then somebody who's wiser in the session says, no, let's write a great song. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm just really just about um, that wonder, um, the magic that is this elusive song um, keeps me coming to the studio. Um, there's a great manager. His name is Jonathan Daniel. He manages Sia and Panic at the Disco and Weezer and, and uh, Miley Cyrus. And he said we were about to go into a session. I was riding with Fitz from Fitz and the Tantrums, and and Jonathan came by uh, on his. He was this was in Hancock Park in L.A., and he was like, you know, Kevin, uh, a songwriting session is one of the few things in life that you can just go in for two to three hours and come out with something that changes everybody's lives, and that's this purity. So every time I walk into a songwriting session, I know that somewhere in the room, that life-changing idea is floating around. I mean, you know, I, I wrote a song called Stuck Like Glue that was a big hit for a band called Sugarland. And the session start, that day started so bad. For four hours, we had nothing. Then we took a break. We went to Intelligentsia Coffee in LA and we came back and I just started playing the silly idea and suddenly this, the shy card of the songwriter started singing something through autotune. And, and in 30 seconds, I was like, oh my God, do that again. And I hit record. And 30 minutes later, we had this hit song. And, but I was so ready to quit earlier. You know those days when you're looking in the top right corner of your computer and you're just seeing the, the clock is barely moving? You know, that was one of those days. And, and, and I'm not a person who's about platitudes or 
those soft focus posters you see on business on office walls that shows the the kitten hanging from the bar and it says just hang in there you know that's not me i hate all that stuff but i typed up on my computer and i printed up and it's it's on this laptop on this desktop here the song is always there that 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 idea that that idea that is so elusive to you is in the room. How, how are you going to enable yourself to be open to receiving it? And I'm not a, you know, and without being metaphysical and stuff, it's really, it's the, it's floating around there. And I, I love any tool, any podcast, any book that, a lot, that gives me tools on how do I o- open up those channels to receive those ideas and what can I do, whether it's something that's tangible or physical. You know, because they're both uh, have equal um, power. Final question. I noticed that some awards around you and obviously the hit songs that you've created, the incredible band, the success that you've had over like 30 years. What are you most proud of? What I'm most proud of is being a memory or a soundtrack to people's lives. The thing that means the most to me for what I do is when someone comes up to me and they usually preface it with this. They say, I know this this sounds stupid, but, and I, and I stop them and go, no, this is why I do what I do. When they tell me, oh man, your song takes me back to this road trip with my best friend or the first dance with my wife, or we walk down the aisle to your song or any number of of memories that's the that's the that is the brass ring that is the the goal because to be to affect someone's life and emotion be that memory for someone because songs have that ability you hear a song and you instantly go back to college you go to that point that happy that sad thing so if i can be in that crazy realm of uh memories for people then, then I've done something right. And, and that's for me is the biggest arbiter of success. And so that means like, I, I want to pay the bills and I love, I love being successful and I'm hungry. Uh, but the real, um, the real award is being that memory for people. And would you change anything from your career? Anything that pops out that you just think, actually, if I knew what I knew now, I would have done something different then. There are certain songs I would have led with as a single because I know they would have been the hit single. <laughs> like, I think, um, I think I would have started, I would have started working more and collaborating with people earlier. I would have checked my ego earlier, um, and 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 because that has paid so many dividends. Look, I would, I've I've learned that the power of of having 20% of a worldwide hit is a lot better than having a hundred percent of nothing, you know, meaning a song I wrote myself or an idea did myself. So I wish I would have learned the joy of reaching out, working with other talented people, collaborating, um, and leaning on people and, and, and being able to say, I don't know, or I need help, or how do we finish this? You know, uh, that is, um, and taking those blinders off, um, earlier, you know, I learned that kind of, well, in my thirties, but I wish I'd done it earlier because that's when life, you know, the long play in life is working with others, collaborating. Uh, and that's when things get really rich. I'm 34 and I'm just realizing now that actually doing it all on your own and creating on your own is one, 
not as profitable or as fulfilling but it's it's also it can be quite a lonely place can't it it can work against you in a lot of respects it is it is and and it gets us and the thing is that it's deceptive because that's what's gotten us to this point right my drive me this is my armor it's all about me and then you you need and you reach a certain point and and you're like okay I'm, i'm plateauing how do i what do i do different you know, and that's what, uh, that's some of the things I talk about, but it's working with others. You know, it's, it's, it's going out with intent to get inspiration and, and growing because man, I'm a believer in the second act, the third act, the fourth act, the fifth act, you know, and, uh, and I see it over and over again. And that's what I'm always shooting for. Amazing. Kevin, what a great way to finish. Before we go, we do have some quick fire questions for you. I'm quite excited to, to know what you pick for your fourth question here. The first one is one piece of advice you would tell your younger self before starting out. Collaborate. Yeah. Work with others. One mantra or belief that has enabled your high performance life. You came up with some quite good mantras actually throughout the whole of this show. Which one? Uh, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, now you're not going to be able to remember any. <laughs> uh, you know what? Nothing changes if nothing changes. Love it. <laughs> and, and the lazy man works twice as hard, Scott. Yeah, I, I was going to say, that's my favorite. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to be stealing that one off you, if that's okay. Uh, <laughs> one ingredient or habit that has allowed you to stay consistent? Exercise. Excellent. Exercise keeps, my, um, keeps me at even keel. It, 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 keeps, me, uh, it keeps my mind clear that natural um, salve, that natural uh, thing that your body gives you when, I, when I'm exercising and my stress is, is a way it allows me to be creative. You know, it allows stress and all those things to be held at bay. That's the thing. Just, Basically yeah. allows all of your sort of cr- creative inhibitors to be diminished in a way. Yeah, exactly. And it's all, and it's all inside, you know, it's all just, you know, it's a great, it's the great gift, everything we need that we often search for with outer things is already in here. So, and and for me, the way unlocking that is, is exercising, you know, is, and it's just, yeah. Final question. What's your go-to tune or artist to tee you up for a big day or a high energy day? You can say yourself as well if you want. Oh God, that's the worst. Uh, <laughs> high energy day, uh, man. I love I love listening to some ELO to start the day. You know, Mister Blue Sky. Um, um, I'm listening to a band called Camp C A A M P. Camp mm-hmm. a lot these days. A great radio station on Spotify is Camp Radio. Um, check that out, and uh, and you'll have a great day. Amazing. Can't wait to check that out. Kevin, thank you so much for your time today. Can you please tell us where we can find the book? I've read about three quarters of it. I didn't quite get it done in time, but I absolutely love it. Um, so can you tell us where we can find it and where people can follow you as well? And You can go. And, and, and actually, yesterday, I got the book. It comes out April 25th. And I actually got a book, a box of the books. That's it. That's the book. Amazing. And, uh, <laughs> and, it, and, uh, and um I'm not that guy normally. They're just in a box over there. Uh, go to kevingriffinmusic.com forward slash book or go to Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever you get books. Uh, it's called The Greatest Song by Kevin Griffin. Check it out. 
I made it short because my favorite books like this are short. I want to give it to me quick. That's what I did. <laughs> it was a, it's for me, it was a really good high performance manual. Like I wasn't expecting what I got from it in terms of when I read it, in terms of the way you distilled the lessons into rules and e interwove this story into it. I absolutely loved it. So I'm sure it's going to be a very popular book. And uh, quick one, one final thing, and this is probably selfish thing. You now run a very popular festival, right? Yeah. Can you give us a bit of an in, insight into when that's going on and, and how people can get involved and go yeah, and check yeah. it out? So, so go to, uh, well, thank you for asking me. It's pilgrimagefestival.com. It's this year, it's September 23rd and 24th. We have the Lumineers, the Black Crows, Zach Bryan, um, the Head and the Heart, Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats, Ashley McBride. Um, it happens every, every year, the uh, third weekend in September. It's a brilliant place and a time to be in middle Tennessee. It's just, it's getting cool. It's a, it's an old Tennessee Walker horse farm on the historic register. It's kind of like if you went to, we, we always say, look, if you went to Bonnaroo or ACL or Glastonbury, but now you're older and you have kids and you like a little more refined experience, you want great wine, great food, pilgrimage festival. Ah, oh, sold. Um, I'm going to yeah. do whatever I can to get that Nashville and get out there, I think. Well, look, you just won two free tickets, Scott. So <laughs> use that use that British Airways connection and uh, come on out. Incredible. Kevin, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, man. Continued success. Mm -hmm.